Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Cork. With the state budget now behind us, New York has swung full force into election season. And it started this week with a huge surprise that's rocked Albany and the future of the Hochul administration. You probably know this by now, but Brian Benjamin resigned on Tuesday from his job as the state's lieutenant governor. You'll remember he was picked for that job last fall by Hochul after she became governor. And at the time, federal investigators had already started looking into donations he received when he ran for New York City Comptroller last year. He's now being accused of promising state funds to a New York City nonprofit in exchange for campaign donations during that race. At the time, he was a state senator. His attorneys say he did nothing illegal, but federal prosecutors say otherwise. The case was brought by Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for Manhattan. Taxpayer money for campaign contributions. Quid pro quo. This for that. That's bribery, plain and simple. And this has caused quite the mess for the Hochul administration and her campaign. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. Yes, it has caused a bit of an issue. Hochul is in a unique position on two fronts. In the immediate future, she will have to pick a new lieutenant governor to serve out the rest of this year's term. In the meantime, Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins will take on the duties of the LG. But on the political front, Hochul will have to figure out what she wants to do about a running mate in this year's election. Even though Brian Benjamin resigned, it could be too late to get him off the ballot for the June primary election. And in New York, candidates for governor and lieutenant governor run separately in the primary. So whoever wins the primary for governor then runs on a unified ticket with the primary winner for LG. That means Hochul could end up running with one of her primary opponent's running mates in November, assuming that she wins her own primary. Polling has shown her with a wide lead against her challengers. She talked about that this week on WNYC, saying that she will take her time weighing those decisions. Uh, no, we're going to go through a process right now. Um, you know, no, it was it was it was a surprise. It, it truly was. Uh, but it was clear to both of us that he could not continue to serve as lieutenant governor. And uh, I want New Yorkers to have complete confidence in their government. During that same interview, she denied rumors that she was scouting Diana Reyna, the running mate of her primary opponent, Congressman Tom Swazi, as her pick for lieutenant governor. Reyna said she hasn't been contacted by the Hochul administration and didn't give a clear answer on whether or not she would accept that offer. It's important um, that we remain focused and not deal with what is thinking about hypothetical questions that have not come to my direction. Um, I have not received a call from Governor Hochul. Meanwhile, Anna Maria Archilla, who's running for lieutenant governor alongside Hochul's other primary opponent, New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, said the Benjamin scandal is a symptom of a larger problem in Albany with corruption. Benjamin failed to disclose his legal troubles to Hochul before he was picked as her LG. In a statement released earlier this week, Archilla said, quote, Albany has been plagued by corruption for too long, with politicians trading favors for the money of the wealthy and powerful. This must stop now. On the Republican side, Allison Esposito, who's running for lieutenant governor with Congressman Lee Zeldin, the party's favorite for governor this year, said Benjamin's arrest and resignation could drive more voters to their side of the aisle in November. The difference is having someone to answer to. Congressman Zeldin and I feel like we have people to answer to. 
every single New Yorker in the state, those who do and don't vote for us, we have to answer to them. And that is what's going to keep us grounded and that will ensure our integrity. The administration now isn't answering to anyone. So who will replace Brian Benjamin as Hochul's running mate? We likely will have to wait at least a few weeks to find that out. Thank you, Daryl. And thank you so much. This is your last show with New York Now, and we want to thank you for everything you've done for the show, for our viewers, and especially New Yorkers. Thank you for allowing me to combine my occupation and my education. <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> All right, staying now with this year's election, this whole situation has really elevated politics in New York and the race for governor in particular. Hochul has the primary in June, which could now become more competitive given her LG's resignation. But whoever wins that race will go on to compete in November against the Republican nominee. And as of now, that's likely to be Congressman Lee Zeldin from Long Island. He was picked as the party's favorite for the nomination in February at their convention. And for lieutenant governor, Republicans have rallied behind Allison Esposito, who we just heard from a moment ago. She's a veteran of the NYPD, and she's also the first openly gay candidate for statewide office with support from a major party. For this week's show, I sat down with both Zeldin and Esposito for a wide-ranging interview on issues facing New Yorkers ahead of this year's election. And just a note, we taped this a few weeks back, before the budget passed, and before Brian Benjamin left office. Take a look. Congressman and Allison, thank you both so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Absolutely. Thank so you. It's been a few months before, uh, since I've had you on, Congressman. And in that time, it, you've really gone across the state. You've been going everywhere in the state and you campaign. My first question to you is, what are you hearing from voters? I want to see, I want to gauge where you are with them in terms of their issues. There's a lot you know, there, we could talk about everything on the board, but what are you hearing from voters in terms of their top issues? This New year? Yorkers everywhere talking about their breaking point. They are thinking about leaving this state for good. Uh, they are probably most often, I would say, citing crime, public safety, not feeling safe outside of their home. Others talking about how they're struggling to survive here economically. Uh, they're just not making enough. I get that. I, I really do. I, I'm trying to buy a house. Right now I've been trying to buy a house for two years. You can't do it. It's impossible. But it, you can start your family in the basement of mom and dad's house, or you can go buy your own home in North Carolina. Yeah. And a lot of New Yorkers, these young New Yorkers, they define the dream, the American dream of having that house, having that stability, that independence. And people are struggling to find that here. Uh, for parents, they're talking about their son and daughter's education. Uh, people also feel like the COVID pandemic restrictions coming from the government and some of the local municipalities were suffocating. People talk about freedom mm. in a way, and they just feel like uh, public service in Albany is about those in government being served by the public. Mm. You know, they hear the governor call on people to, to take the COVID vaccine by being her apostles. Uh, she was giving a speech a couple weeks ago to NISAC. She referred to herself as the mother of all 62 counties. We're all equals here. You might get a title. You might be serving in position of governor. But people aren't feeling that uh, strong connection. Trust is getting breached. And people feel like this state needs to be saved.
You know, Allison, I want to pose the same question to you. You've been in the campaign a little, you know, less than Lee has so far, but you've heard from voters, especially on the crime issue. What are you hearing from people? And I want to pose that question to you because, as our, our viewers probably know by now, you are in the process of retiring from the NYPD. Mm -hmm. You've served there for uh, 25 years, it was? Almost, a little over 24 years. Yeah. So what are people telling you about the crime problem? I mean, it, there is a problem. I, I think that's indisputable. What are people's concerns? Well, I heard it before I made this decision to join this, this amazing team. Uh, I heard it from the communities I served. I heard it from my officers who live in the city, live in the state. Uh, I heard it over and over again, and that's actually what prompted me to throw my hat into this arena and to step into this, this fight, if you will, to save our state. I'm hearing that parents want their children to be able to walk to school or walk to the local park without fear of being hit by a stray bullet. I hear parents worrying about drug overdoses. I hear parents worried about what's going on in their schools. I, I hear communities that after the calls to defund the police, I, the communities that are underrepresented or inner city or any community of, of any kind of different culture or diverse background, begging. They were on conference calls with me, begging to have their police back. Mm. Their neighborhood cops that knew what was going on. The elderly that were afraid now to come out of their apartments or walk through their lobbies because drug dealers were in the lobbies, you know, selling product or, or, or making deals or, or carrying firearms, and intimidating the people who live there. That's what's going on. We. We somehow, our, our ruling class, our ruling elite in Albany saw fit to, to give the criminals all the power, to take the, the judicial uh, ability to, to look at past history and flight risk and dangerousness out of the hands of our judges and put it into some broad stroke. And it put our people of the city and of the state of New York at, at risk. That's why I gave up my career and I stepped into this arena. I want to ask you about this issue that we've seen probably in the past decade heat up of uh, this conflict between communities of color and police, which isn't always the case. And I think that these incidents are isolated in, in places like Daniel Prude in Rochester, Ferguson, Missouri, things like that. But as a police officer, how do you balance those things, the, the need to, to ha not have those bad apples in law enforcement that are discriminatory and the duty of a police officer? So let me just say one thing, just to start off that answer. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Right. And that is an absolute fact. And they need, they need to be weeded out immediately, and justice needs to be served, whether that's firing or actually in the criminal justice system where they're tried and incarcerated. Uh, and I, every good cop that was called to service believes that. Mm -hmm. There is a call to service. Um, and yes, there are, there are strains in relationships uh, in different communities and law enforcement. And we can always strive to be better as humans, as cops, in government. We always strive to be the best we can possibly be. And anybody who says, oh, if it's not broke, don't fix it, or oh, we've always been doing it that way, isn't a visionary, isn't a leader, and isn't listening to their constituents or their people. Cops are there to serve and protect. And we are continuously, myself and the NYPD, and I know police departments around the state and around the country, are trying to, to bridge the gap and trying to have more trust on both sides in law enforcement and community. And I always said with the community that I served, I spent more time at work 
than I did at home. So I counted myself among that community as a member. And for the most part, that's how I was received. Now, there's always going to be problems and complaints. And my office door was open. The community could come in. We could discuss it. It's not always going to be rectified the way they would like, but the door is open. And that's the first part of leadership, is being able to listen and knowing you're not always right. My mother always said, if you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. <laughs> so uh, that is kind of how I've, I've, I've evolved as a leader. And the, the open door policy with the community, if they have an issue, we'll work on it together. We're humans. Cops are humans. We do make mistakes. And when changes need to be made, we're going to make them. We'll do it together. So both of you are against the bail reform laws that were passed in 2019. They were amended in 2020. It's been quite a journey for these laws. We're taping before the state budget, and this may air after the state budget. So in terms of undoing bail reform, I know that both of you want to repeal it. What's the next step after that, do you think, to solve this problem that we've seen in the criminal justice system of you have cash bail, some people can pay to get out, some people cannot pay to get out. Is that the right system? And I want to give this to you, Lee, first. Is that the right system? And how would you change it moving forward to try to get rid of that inequity? For all offenses, judges should have discretion to weigh dangerousness and flight risk, past criminal record, seriousness of the offense. That discretion allows them to make sure that bail is tailored to the individual person as opposed to a one-size-fits-all. What we have right now with the law is that judges who want to keep somebody incarcerated, uh, they are unable to do so. They get released and they commit additional offenses. And the judge knew that this was going to happen again. And it, it feels like uh, the justice system has handcuffs around it instead of the criminals having the handcuffs. Uh, I believe that cashless bail is a contributing factor to uh, this feeling amongst New Yorkers. They don't feel safe on the streets, but it's not the only component. It's the one I hear about the most. But people are sort of talking about district attorneys like Alvin Bragg coming in and he had his day one memo and refusing to enforce laws across the book and other laws across the board, uh, treating them as lesser offenses. We have a push inside of Albany for uh, going further in this defund the police movement beyond just the debate over funding. There's, uh, the, whether it's the uh, less, the implementation of less is more, where mm. certain people are getting released who should stay behind bars. When Kathy Hochul signed it, you had uh, a release of 191 people. Several of them immediately went out and got uh, rearrested for additional offenses. There's uh, the advocacy that if a domestic violence victim calls 911, that you shouldn't be allowed to send law enforcement. Instead, you should be sending a social worker. So this debate continues. Cashless bail is the highest profile item, it seems, at the moment, but it's not the only thing for us to be talking about that needs to be solved. Allison, from your perspective, as somebody who has been in law enforcement for several years, uh, the, the idea to me of pushing some of these calls to mental health services seems like it might not, I, I don't mean the domestic violence victims, to be clear, but some calls, it seems to me, might make the lives of police easier. What do you think about that? Well, as police, we, we are asked uh, and tasked in wearing many hats. Yes. We are mediators. We are big brothers and sisters. We are, you know, marriage counselors. Uh, and we do wear hats in mental health. I, I understand the thought process behind it because you're, you're kind of taking the, the, the law enforcement aspect and it's more of a, we're here to help you. Right. 
Unfortunately, what that also does is someone who is in a mental health crisis at that point, who is not thinking straight, who is not uh, possibly on the medication that, that, you know, kind of brings them down to a level where they can have a conversation, who's in crisis, we're not doing enough to be able to help them at that point because we're sending in a social worker and there have been social workers that have gone and have been killed and injured in the past. And we're putting them in harm's way for a person who's already at a heightened sense of crisis. At that point, I think it's a danger to the people responding. Law, law enforcement officers are asked to wear these many hats and we are trained in different aspects of it. But again, that goes to the, the call to defund the police. You don't want to defund the police. If you're going to have officers responding, how about we institute more training, maybe a deeper mm. mental health course in crisis and, and how to, to, uh, to communicate and how to sidestep potential problems in law enforcement. Give the police more training. Give them the tools that they need to be successful. No cop goes out on the street and wants to hurt anybody. Unfortunately, it does happen, but it changes you. That is not our intention. We want to go home at the end of the night to our families, and we want to make sure that everyone we interact with during the day also has a chance to survive and has a chance to thrive in our communities. I'm glad that we get to talk about this like this, because I often feel when we talk about this issue that things get really lost in kind of the politics of it and the partisanship of it, and it's kind of like just all talking points and not really getting to the heart of it. So I'm glad we get to talk about it. And I could talk about crime with both of you for 30 whole minutes, but I want to circle back to affordability because we, we touched on it at the start, Lee. I want to ask you about what you can do there. So as governor, you'd have immense power over this. So I know that you support suspending the gas tax, for example, but I want to look past that. So say it is January 1st, 2023, you're in office. What's your first steps to make New York more affordable to keep more people here? We need to be lowering taxes across the board. When you talk to New Yorkers who are struggling to make ends meet and they'll talk to you about inflation and the supply chain crisis, the cost to fill up their oil tank at home or their gas tank to be able to get to work, uh, there are real life struggles of not being able to survive. It, people feel like they're living in poverty where in other states you, you might even refer to them as comfortably in the middle class. Being able to take a vacation on top of it all and not have to decide whether or not to get groceries or fill up your gas tank. Unfortunately, in New York, people are underemployed making a salary that you'd be comfortable elsewhere. But then there's the, the other dynamic where somebody might be very well off. So politicians in Albany would say, we need to make so-and-so pay their fair share. And what you have to do is play out the steps of how this is going to work out because if you increase their income tax one more point, which is what happened a year ago, you think that you're making all of these different people pay more. But what actually happened was that a bunch of them then call their accountant, they call their attorney, and now they change their residency to Florida. And instead of you raising their taxes, you actually lowered their New York taxes to zero because they decided that they're gone with New York, they're hitting their breaking point. You also have to improve the culture in the state. The, inside of state agencies, the people who run the, you know, the state liquor authority, you have to make sure you don't have that person who's harassing that restaurant, that bar owner, over something so minor just because that particular employee 
uh, believes that they have to find someone in order to feel like they've done their job that day. I hear these stories. I hear from people who have to deal with the DEC. There are great employees of these different state agencies. I'm talking about rare exceptions. We have to improve the culture. I believe that there are opportunities for expansive growth. Uh, suspending the gas tax is just one component on energy. Uh, in Albany, where they're talking about banning all gas hookups on new construction, that's the wrong answer. We should be greenlighting these applications for new pipelines. Think mm -hmm. of all the jobs that would create, uh, the way that we can deliver energy resources across the state. Uh, we also have to uh, do a better job talking to each other about the realities of extracting natural gas, the resources that are under us. Uh, we could become energy independent, create jobs, revitalize communities, generate revenue. We could be not only independent as it relates to energy in the state, we could be exporting to other states, we could be exporting to other countries. Uh, we just need to be creative in tapping into everything we have within this state uh, to be able to make life more affordable. It's going to require us to cut taxes across the board, but also create new opportunities so people can live their American dream here in New York, as opposed to feeling like they have no choice but to chase it elsewhere. So with, with the cut taxes, um, Democrats have put new tax rates on, on the high income earners in New York, as you mentioned. What do you do as governor if you get rid of those? You bring taxes down. We're going to lose some revenue in the state. So what do you do there with the state budget? Would you be looking at cuts in the state budget? And have you identified anywhere that you would like to cut? Last year's budget had over $3 billion in the excluded workers fund. Uh, I didn't support that fund. I don't believe that it should be continued. Uh, inside of Medicaid, the conversion to managed long-term care came with uh, so much extra taxpayer dollars that got wasted. Uh, abuse of for-profit, non-for-profit rules where people are cheating the system. We celebrate when some dentist gets in trouble because they charge for 11 cav cavities instead of one. Oh, thank you. You saved us $50,000. But you have individuals who are cheating the Medicaid system and the Medicaid budget. Uh, Medicaid is a really important program. I support the Medicaid program. It needs to be strong. It needs to be efficient. We should be enraged by all the examples of people who are taking advantage of it, paying more on their purchasing than they should. We should look at procurement, new outside-the-box ways to be able to deliver these services cheaper with more transparency. Uh, I believe that there, are, uh, and by the way, we're talking about billions of dollars. Yes. It's, we're not talking Medicaid about millions. Medicaid is one of the state's largest expenses by Billions far. can be saved. Yeah, exactly. So, Allison, I want to end with you. Um, so, you are the first openly gay candidate who's been endorsed by a state party. So, to be clear, the Democrats in New York have not put forth a openly gay candidate for statewide office. You're the first one. How does that feel? It's, uh, it, it feels, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how it feels. <laughs> um, it feels, it feels the same way it felt when Congressman Zeldin asked me to be part of his team. I mean, it's part of who I am. I, I am a, a, a gay woman. I'm very proud to be a gay woman. Uh, it's part of who I am. And it, and it feels like I'm now in a position, uh, to be able to help the people of the state of New York. I, I walked away from a career that I loved, um, and I threw my name into this hat, and my hat into this arena, <laughs> and as a female, as, uh, as a gay female, as a New York City resident, and as a cop, 
I'm going to bring everything I can to this ticket to make sure that we deliver back to the people of the state of New York the state they deserve. There are some members of the Republican Party who are not so kind to gay people, as you and I both know. How do you balance those two things, being the Republican nominee for LG and being a part of this community? I, I think in New York, that's not quite the case. At least that's been my experience covering state politics and interacting with quite a few Republicans in my time doing it. So how do you balance that? I think, honestly, I, I think the, the Republicans kind of get a bad rep with that. I mean, I, I, I'm gay and Republican. It, it can happen, you know? It, it can happen. Um, it's, and I keep saying, this isn't, if it, this isn't really just a, a red wave. This is a common sense wave. And as a gay New Yorker, I want the same things as every other New Yorker. I want safety. Um, I want equal protection under the law. Uh, I want my nephews and nieces to be able to go to school safely. I, I want to make sure that criminals are prosecuted. I want my taxes low. I want to be able to spend my hard-earned money in the state that I love. And, you know, I haven't, uh, I haven't really, I mean, there's always going to be bad apples in every bunch sure. that always won't, that won't sway off of their beliefs on, on whatever grounds it is. But I honestly, I, 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 I am a certified trainer for fair and impartial policing as well. And I'm a firm believer in contact theory. Uh, the more you get to know someone, the more you see their perspective. And perspective is their reality. It may not be reality, but it's their reality. Yeah. So it's a conversation. And this is, another, this is another way to have the conversation. A lot of my beliefs are very, very similar. So why would you not be so friendly to me? Well, maybe we should have a conversation. And again, we're a lot closer on, in the aisle than people would think. And it's really all about being able to have that conversation. So anyone who does have those differing opinions or you know, issues with me, I, I welcome them to have a conversation with me. Absolutely. Maybe they can do it right here. Who knows? Absolutely. Allison Esposito, candidate for lieutenant governor. Congressman Lee Zeldin, candidate for governor. Designated candidates, I should say. Correct. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you. And if you want to hear more from Zeldin, we spoke with him last year as well. We'll link to that interview on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. And again, Zeldin is facing a primary in June. He's competing against businessman Harry Wilson, Andrew Giuliani, the son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino, and Lewis County Sheriff Mike Carpinelli. And just a note, we have been in contact with Governor Hochul's office about having her on the show. More on that soon. And as we approach the primary in June, we'll try to have all the candidates facing a statewide primary on the show so you know who you're voting for. In the meantime, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.